Stay hungry, stay foolish. Fifty-two years ago, our guest foresaw and implemented the foundations for the world's first trillion-dollar organization. Back then, Visa was little more than a set of unorthodox convictions about organizations slowly growing in the mind of a young corporate rebel. Today, according to the Visa 2019 annual report, payments and cash volume for the year was a staggering $11.6 trillion. Transactions processed on Visa's networks totaled $138.3 trillion, and the year saw some 3.4 billion Visa cards in operation. Our guest is the man who imagined this reality, who had a once deemed impossible vision 52 years ago, a vision which has become a concrete reality today. He is a man who has a different view on what the next 50 years can deliver, but that vision will require a radical shift in mindset for every single one of us. His book, One From Many, is much more than the story of the scarcely believable events that brought Visa into being and led to its extraordinary success. It is also the story of an introverted small-town child passionate to read, dream and wander the woods, the youngest of six born to parents but with an eighth-grade education. It is a story of confinement and boredom in school and church along with sharp, rising awareness of the chasm between how institutions profess to function and how they actually do, what they claim to do for people and what they actually do to them. It is about three compelling questions arising from that awareness that came to dominate his life. Why are institutions everywhere, whether political, commercial or social, increasingly unable to manage their affairs? Why are individuals everywhere increasingly in conflict with and alienated from the institutions of which they are part? Why are society and the biosphere increasingly in disarray? This is the story of a lifelong search for the answers to those questions. It is a story of harboring four beasts that inevitably devour their keeper, ego, envy, avarice and ambition, and of their great bargain trading ego for humility, envy for equanimity, avarice for time and ambition for liberty. It is a story of events impossible to foresee that sent a man of 92 at the time 55, on an odyssey, more than improbable than Visa, and infinitely more important. At 92, he is still in the midst of that odyssey. Beyond all else, it is the story of the future, of something trying to happen, of a 400-year-old age rattling in its deathbed as another struggles to be born. It is not the story of today's guest, although he is central to it. It is not just your story, or my story, it is a story of all of us. It is such an immense honor to welcome the founder and CEO emeritus of Visa and the author of the pioneering work, The Birth of the Chaotic Age, and its updated version, One from Many, Visa and the Rise of the Chaotic Organization. D. Hawk, a very warm welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Aidan. Thank you for inviting me and very nice introduction. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Dee. I know I've been chasing you for many years. When I discovered the book, I just had to have you on. But it's going to be a multi-part show, a multi-part series, because there's so much to tell. And what we're aiming for is to share the years preceding Visa, your background, those formative years, the concepts marinating in your mind, 
and the struggles you had with a control-obsessed world. Then we'll turn to the next 50, when you left Visa, why you left, why you listened to that inner voice that you refer to throughout the book as monkey mind, and what we all need to do to make order from today's incessant chaos. Before we share those early years, let's share some concepts, lenses, if you will, through which the listener can view your story, D. For example, your thoughts regarding control. You tell us control requires denial of life. Life is uncertainty, surprise, hate, wonder, speculation, love, joy, pity, pain, mystery, beauty, and a thousand other things we can't imagine. Life is not about control. It's not about getting. It's not about having. It's not about knowing. It's not even about being. Life is eternal, a perpetual becoming, or it is nothing. Becoming is not a thing to be known, commanded, or controlled. It is a magnificent, mysterious odyssey to be experienced. I thought this was a beautiful way to view your story, Dee, and I'd love if you'd give us a few words on your view of control in this world that's obsessed with control. The question of control is at least one of the things that's so central to my way of thinking. We live in a world, and we'll probably get into this later in the series, that has been totally dominated for the last three centuries or four centuries by the mechanistic, hierarchical command and control organizations which we experience everywhere in religion, in schools, in commercial organizations, in government. And these notions of command and control go clear back to Aristotle and Plato. But it was primarily Newtonian physics and Cartesian philosophy that made them the dominant way of thinking some three centuries ago. And that led us to create societal organizations, gave rise to what I would call the machine metaphor. And that is that we could, through science and modern thinking, create societal organizations in which we could push a lever, make a command at one place, and get a desired result at another. And for uh, the last three or four centuries, We've been building these organizations and pulling the levers, and occasionally we get the desired result, but more often we get unintended consequences, which has led us into a world in which we're in thousands of disconnected command and control acts. We've savaged the environment. We've punched holes in the ozone layer of the atmosphere. We've created work places in which people are trained to be nothing more than cogs and wheels and to endlessly replete some simple task. Uh, you can look around and you see this everywhere. And it's led me to believe uh, through a, a sequence of things in my life that this a lust for control, this effort to control and make everything predictable is uh, diametrically opposed to life and in its essence is really a death wish even though we don't really recognize it uh, that we have all individually developed an internal model of reality which is based on the machine and on mathematics and it's 
simply antithetical to human life and destructive of the biosphere. That's beautifully put, T. And I love this concept of a constant evolution, constant becoming that I mentioned in that little quote that I had from the book, because this is absolute key to even the formation of Visa. And you coined this term, which I absolutely love, the term K-order, trying to merge lifelong love of nature, 16 extraordinary years creating Visa, thoughts from the book and a conviction about nature of institutions into a single simple adjective. And I'd love if you'd share your definition of chaotic. Well, I coined in my uh, later years after I had formed Visa and after I had left it, when I was on a crusade to discover the answer to some deeper questions about three questions that came to dominate my life and how they emerged my early years. That is, the three questions which still preoccupy my mind is, why are institutions, I'll use the word institutions for all kinds of organizations, why are institutions everywhere, whether commercial, social, political, or religious, increasingly unable to manage their affairs. The second question was, why are people everywhere increasingly alienated from and in conflict with the organizations of which they're part? And the third question is, why are society and the biosphere increasingly in disarray. And it seemed to me as these questions emerged and I tried to pursue the answers that the questions themselves were obviously true and and should be apparent to any thinking person. So those questions still bother me and I'm still searching for the (laughs) final answers. But they were fundamental to everything that happened in my life. I often feel as though I've lived four lives, or maybe more, because in my earliest years, I was living in a community and at a scale that is similar to what most people's great-grandparents lived. And then I moved into a sort of upwardly mobile young person's life as my children were born, and I fell into my first management job at 20 and lived through that period of time. And and then by serendipitous circumstances, I could have never imagined led to the creation of an obsession with creating the world's premier system for the exchange of value, which eventually became Visa. And you've kindly in your introduction told your audience about its dimensions today. Then I uh, quit at the height of success with Visa to return to the land and to nature and lived a period of 15 years, like most people re lived their retirement, and then another set of serendipitous circumstances sent me off on an odyssey far greater than Visa 
and I think much more important, which has occupied the last 36 years of my life and the authoring of the books, and I'm still at it. I'm still working actively on that odyssey. So it's been an extraordinary life and one that I never could have imagined. An absolutely extraordinary story. And I'd love to delve deep into that story because one of the things that really dawned on me through reading your book is that some of these ideas were formulated as, at a young age. And to start with, your birth was within a month of the economic crash and the Great Depression, which lasted through the 30s, ending with the Second World War and its aftermath lasting through the 40s. So your first 22 years were largely during a very abnormal, chaotic time in a small, uniquely Mormon community. But I thought a great way to start was the story of you moving house, where your family literally moved the house. They picked it up and brought it to another place. And just to guide the listener here, there was six kids, two kids died. And some examples of the mindset you grew up with is epitomized by phrases like riches are not in the number of possessions, but the fewness of wants, wish not, want not, and money's manure. It's no good unless you spread it just to give context to your early years. And I'd love if you shared those early years, Dee. Yes, well, I was born in a tiny little uh, village in Utah at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, between the Wasatch Range of the Rocky Mountains and the Great Salt Lake, a community that was completely dominated socially, politically, in every way by the Mormon Church. And my mother and father were born and raised in Michigan where they had two children, and my father had a tubercular sister. And at that time, tuberculosis could only be treated by moving to high, dry mountain climate. And because he had a few short-tailed relatives in Utah, my mother and father picked up and came across the country to Utah with nothing but a few suitcases and landed in North Ogden with only $5 in their pocket. And their relatives had found them lodging in an old falling down brick house where I was born. And after they moved to Utah, they had four more children. One died at birth and another daughter died at 13 of scarlet fever. My father took any kind of laboring jobs you could find. And my birth was almost the month of the beginning of the Great Depression. That depression hit Utah, worst of all the states. And a farmer living, uh, this little brick house was out in a very rural, almost primitive farming community. And a, a neighboring farmer uh, had hit some financial difficulties and offered to sell my father an acre of land for monthly installments. So my first memories were of, of him also acquiring a small frame house about a mile down the highway. And with teams of horses and manual labor, they jacked it up and rolled it on telephone poles <laughs> down the highway, 
cut off the poles and embedded them in sections in the ground and then lowered the little frame house onto that wooden foundation. The house itself was no more than a thousand square feet. One large room, semi-divided into living and kitchen, no sink, no running water, no plumbing. We carried water for the house quarter of a mile along the road in five-gallon cans and only had a wooden heating stove and a wooden burning stove. Hot water had to be heated on top of the stove in pans. And with no uh, indoor plumbing, nothing but an outhouse 100 feet or so away on the acre of land. My parents and the four children were raised there. There was a screened-in sleeping porch, unheated, and the whole family slept there in my parents in a double bed. I was in a crib until I was probably five or six years old, and my sisters were in another bed. It gives you some idea of the conditions. While we weren't poor, or I never felt poor, we were certainly near the bottom of the economic circumstances in this little community of four or 500 people. Our acre then, we developed large garden, berry patch, raspberries, kept a cow, kept chickens for eggs and meat, raised rabbits for meat. Nothing, absolutely nothing was wasted. Every button was cut from worn-out clothing. Uh, Every piece of string was rolled up in a ball. Baling wire from hay for the cow was collected. Uh, Every scrap of leather was saved to resole shoes. Flour was sold in large colored sacks. And sacks were used to make shirts and dresses. Uh, all by hand, and every bit of worn-out clothing was put in a rag bag to be cut up to make quilts, and things that were too shabby for that were just used as rags and washed and laundered and reused till they literally fell apart. So that was kind of the world I was born into. It's a fascinating view of the world as it was, and those childhood experiences can very much form all of our worldviews and our mental models. But one line especially stands out for me, and I quote you here, you said, what is this chasm between how most institutions profess to function and how they actually do, between what they claim to do for people and what they actually do to them? What makes people behave in the name of institutions in ways they would never behave in their own name? Church, school, government, all the same. And these initial instances had a remarkable impact on you and your thinking started here where you became a rebel against the way things were and orthodox systems, etc. But I'd love if you shared how this started the ball rolling of your thinking about how you could change organizations or institutions. Our house was in the middle of farmland and not too far from where the farmland turned into marshes that led to the Great Salt Lake. 
and the mountains were there. And of course, it was an, a totally safe community. Children were free to wander almost anywhere they wanted. I, uh, early on, never felt I uh, belonged in that family. My father was very tall and physically oriented, and uh, I was somewhat introverted and loved to be alone and wander outside in the fields and adjoining woods. And I was not close to my father. We were constantly confronting one another. He was of the school that said, there's only one way, one right way to do everything. And of course, that was his way. And I was always resented that. And he and I were in conflict most of our lives, not physical, but otherwise. So I fell deeply in love with nature. I just was intrigued by the countless varieties of insects and life uh, and so on. And also, I learned to read for some reason I can't even remember before I went to school. And reading became another endless great passion of mine. So I wasn't close to any of my siblings. The only brother was uh, 18 when I was born. I never knew him. He married and moved back to Michigan. And I wasn't close to either either of my sisters. So I lived a um, pretty much an internal life in those early years before school and church. So I suppose the feeling of being alienated from organizations had its early genesis in the family. I was well-treated. I, I was not in any way abused, but I just didn't have a sense of belonging. And with school and church came just incredible boredom and sense of confinement. I didn't like to be confined indoors. I wanted to be outdoors. So this sense of boredom, of alienation. I knew almost everybody in the town, or a lot of them, and I knew how they behaved as individuals, but put them in the church building and they behaved entirely differently. And also in school, I knew how most of my teachers lived, and they were fine people, put them in a classroom, and they become, in my, my view, tyrants. And the same thing in the church, saying this is what you must believe. And so with school and church, uh, I saw such a, a clear distinction even then between nature and, and human beings. Nature never seemed to have this problem. There was no principal blackbird in a flock. There was no president tree in the forest. And yet everything was competition and cooperation in nature. The two just seemed constantly blended. But move people into an organization of any kind, and the divisiveness started. It was either this or that. It was either true or it was false. It was either right or it was wrong. It was good or it was bad. 
my mindset, these opposites always blended into one another. And I couldn't have articulated it this way at that time because I was very young. But that's where all these sensations or feelings emerged. It was also a community in which I never heard the word rights. I never knew anybody had any rights. But I certainly heard a lot about responsibilities. Responsibilities to family, to friends, to neighbors, to church, to schools, to the state, to everything. Work ethic was a huge thing in your life, and you proved that in the formation of Visa, but it started at a very young age. One of the homilies that was repeated to me endlessly was, root hog or die, meaning you took care and earned your own living or you didn't. So from the time I can remember as almost as a toddler, I had chores. I had feed rabbits, feed chickens, work in the garden, get up at 5 a.m. with my parents to pick raspberries. So work was just something I was born into and accepted as the essential element of, of what a man did, or what a woman did. Endless chores around the house to uh, picking fruit at uh, the piecework, picking cherries and red and strawberries, beans, all kinds of vegetables. And because of the war, children were able to get jobs of that kind very early. So I, I every summer of my life was that I can remember even before I started school was involved in that kind of work. And at 12 years of age, I got my first, I guess, salary job working on a neighbor's farm for uh, 20 cents an hour. And the first nickel raise looked monumental to me. So I worked two years on that farm. At 14, I forged a birth certificate. You had to be 16 to work around with heavy machinery. Well, I changed the nine to a seven. So it appeared I was born in 1927. Got a work permit and a social security number and a job dumping slop in a canning factory. And every summer I worked as a cleanup man in a dairy at a war depot, dipping chains in tar in 90-degree heat. I worked in a labor pool as a slaughterhouse, killing animals and dissecting them for meat. I worked spraying orchards another summer, and at 19... Shortly before marriage, I was hoeing up mortar in a wheelbarrow and keeping three bricklayers supplied with mortar and bricks. I can remember being so proud of being able to do it, a man's work when I was 14 years old. So I had a life of manual labor. A fortuitous sports injury led you to a serendipitous moment. One of your Teachers in school spotted the talent in you that you had this opportunity to be a debater. And debating ended up leading you to college, which was instrumental in your future. In school, 
I, of course, as a young fellow, was deeply into sports. At that time, the first two years of high school was at what's called junior high school, attached to the middle school and elementary school. And we went to the county high school only for the final two years. In junior high school, I was guard on a basketball team and a pitcher on a baseball team and uh, dreamed of, uh, of being a star at the high school on the teams and a life pretty much of sports. I was also deeply into hunting and fishing because that was a way of putting food on the table. But when I went to high school, I went out for the football team. I'd never played tackle football. I had no equipment, so I had to use old used equipment the school provided. And unfortunately, early in the football season, I experienced a concussion and also uh, bruised the muscle in my lower leg from my knee to my ankle turned black and blue, and I therefore could not continue with football, and that ended my sporting career. But at the high school, fortunately, I was a dean of men, it was called, dean of the boys, and he was from my community, and he knew of my passion for reading. I became a a speed reader and, and read eclectically and collected books from the time I was five or six years old. And that had developed a substantial vocabulary. The way I described my school years, and this applied to all of them, was that, that I was a, a young man who simply would not conform so that put me in conflict with all these organizations. And I loved to learn. I was passionate to learn, but I hated to be taught. I wanted to learn on my own, in my own way. But this dean got to me and persuaded me to look at getting on the debate team. And at that time, forensics and public speaking was very, very strong part of the Mormon school systems. And they had uh, debate tournaments that were the equivalent of athletic tournaments, culminating in a state championship. So I fell in love with debating. The idea of having to look at both the affirmative and negative sides of major questions like universal military training. Every year, all high schools in the nation would have a common debate subject so they could have tournaments. And in a debate tournament, you alternated sides. You would meet another team and you would take the affirmative, they'd take the negative. In the next round, you would have to take the negative side of the question and they would have to take the affirmative. Well, I fell in love with debating, and in my senior year, my partner and I uh, entered, uh, of course, the annual state competition, which was conducted at a series of regional tournaments, 
And then the winners of those tournaments uh, went on to, to debate for the state championship. And my partner and I won eight consecutive rounds to win our regional tournament. Then we went to the state tournament and another eight consecutive rounds to win the state championship. And I also was able to take a second place in extemporaneous speaking. Well, that was the first time in my life that I realized maybe I had more abilities than I really thought I had, which was an enormous boost to someone like me. And my parents both had to leave school in the eighth grade to help support their families. We were not a bookish family, so I don't know why I fell into it, but no one in our family had ever gone to college. So as a result of the state championship, I got a small stipend and some scholarship to attend the small junior college in Ogden, then called Weber College. It's now Weber State University. And there I continued to debate and with my partner won a national junior college debate tournament. Meanwhile, I have to go back a little bit, and my first big love was nature. My second big obsession was passion for reading and literature. And the third was a extremely beautiful brown-eyed girl from a neighboring community, Pleasant View. She was the 11th of 12 children raised on a tiny 40-acre farm in a house no larger than the one I was raised in. She was a straight-A student. I was a mediocre student getting an A's in, in everything I liked and content with a B or a C in courses that bored me. But we were both in the same classroom in rows of desks where the back of one desk was the front of another. And in the way of all small boys seeking attention, I uh, snuck my hand behind me, thinking I would tip her books onto the floor and create a little ruckus. And without any expression at all in her beautiful eyes or the slightest word to me with her fingernails, she put four bloody crescent moons in the back of my hand. And we fell in love after a couple of dates together and uh, were constantly with each other for the next six years until I had finished college and then we married at 20. At that time when we married, I was carrying hod for the bricklayers and she could not go to college because her father died in high school and she had to go to work as a seamstress in a tailoring mill in order to help support her mother and younger sister. But at 20, we decided the time had come. And I was carrying hard, and she was still working as a seamstress. I remember vividly. As the winter approached, of course, mortar tended to freeze 
and bricklaying came to a halt. So I was out of work. Simultaneously, her mill caught fire and burned down, and she was out of work. So we were newly married, living in a basement apartment for which we paid $50 a month. And we didn't have a penny to our name. We were just literally desperate. A brother-in-law who was working for a finance company in Ogden called me one day when we were very, very depressed and worried about how we'd make our living and told me that another small finance office had need of a trainee to do collections and some work. And I had never worked indoors in my life, but he got me an appointment with the manager of the office. The manager of the office seemed to like me and told me I had to drive to Salt Lake City to interview the supervisor. My wife and I had an old car, a 34 Chevrolet we'd bought for $200, and we set out for Salt Lake, and halfway there, the muffler fell out of the car. So I had no choice but to rip it off and throw it aside, and we went roaring into Salt Lake like a diesel truck with no muffler on the car. And the supervisor, I was only 20 years old. I was a couple of months shy of my 21st birthday, uh, or, or a few months, six months shy. He liked me, and so I obtained a job as a apprentice in this small finance office. Just had a manager and myself and one clerk. And by uh, circumstances, just couldn't have predicted Six months after I went to work there, the manager suddenly quit to move to Idaho and go in the insurance business. And they uh, didn't have any trained people in the office in Salt Lake. So the supervisor made me acting manager of the office two months before my 21st birthday. And I, it was quite an experience. So I decided I might as well do it. I could, I really couldn't believe that you could make money sitting in an office in clean clothes. I'd never experienced anything like it. So I, I managed to hire an assistant myself who was as son as I was. And when I started out managing that office, the average age of the three employees was a little below 21. This was a branch of a company headquartered in Los Angeles. So I paid no attention to the operating manual. I just literally threw it in a trash can and set to work to run this office as, as circumstances and ingenuity and my ability would allow. And within a year, it was leading uh, the 200 offices in the country in uh, growth of volume of business, in lowest delinquency, and in loss recoveries from previous bad loans. And that brought the office to the attention of the leaders of the company 
and the more senior people. And all of a sudden, this crushing fist of hierarchical management started to descend. The supervisors would come in and complain that I wasn't following the procedures in the manual and seemingly ignore the results I was getting. Uh, They were paying me only $200 a month, and my wife was back to work making $100 a month. But the management, their attitude was, well, if we let you violate the manual, everybody else will start violating the manual, and then where will we be? And my reaction was, was, well, you'd probably be in paradise (laughs) if they could emulate what we're achieving here. But it didn't make any difference. It's what I call successful business failure where the results are excellent, but the organization is so mechanical and control-minded that it can't tolerate deviation. So whether you were on the good side of deviation or the bad side, you were criticized and frowned on, if not outright fired, by these organizations which I had grown to detest. But at that stage in my life, I I could see these things clearly. I could experience them, but I hadn't gotten far enough along in my life to really become obsessed trying to find out why society was so organized. You had many battles with corporate wolves, as you call them, D. You were betrayed, ostracized, and taken advantage of, much like any changemaker the pioneers take the arrows. And you opened an office in Oregon, transferred to Los Angeles, and had the same experience and found yourself in Seattle. From 23, you'd tried to climb the corporate ladder, and over a period of 16 years, despite getting extraordinary results by unorthodox methods, you always found yourself clashing with the status quo. But those years were fundamental in preparing you for what was to come and turned your interest in the three questions from interest into obsession. I'd love if you shared the period of this 16 years. Despite these results, you constantly clashed with the status quo. Yes, I had in my early years rebelled against school and church and work. But it wasn't a rebellion like you would consider the present time in your face and boycotting things, but it it was simply a quiet rebellion. I just refused to accept orthodox ideas or be taught by authoritarian means or seek acceptance by conformity. So I wanted to do things and use my own creativity and intelligence But I had immense success in my first management job at 21. But after a couple of years, the central or core of the company, the senior people, found out I wasn't paying attention to the manual. I was doing things in unorthodox ways. and They started uh, criticizing and pounding me to conform. And I just resisted that. We were married, of course. We had one child, and my wife was pregnant with a second. 
And we had taken a vacation and driven through uh, Idaho and gone down the uh, Columbia River Gorge through Oregon. And I was just astounded by the beauty and forests, little farms. And we wanted to get away from Utah. I had told the company, if we ever open any offices in Oregon, I'd like to uh, consider being transferred. So uh, they came back to me when my wife was only a couple months away from the birth of our second child and told me they were opening three offices in Oregon and would I like to manage one. And it was a town in Klamath Falls. And I said, yes, I would. But they, um, at that time, uh, said, well, you've got to realize this transfer is at your request, so we can't pay any of your moving expenses, pay for you to go up and look at it. So you'll just have to say yes or no. And I just didn't realize that that was a good indication that it was a centralized bureaucracy and had no concern for the people that worked for it. But at any rate, I accepted, drove to the town, and I was appalled at it because it wasn't in the beautiful wooded country. It was higher up on the inland plain, and the beautiful lake that you could see on maps turned out to be full of algae, and it's on the edge of an Indian reservation. I called my wife. I was ready to go home, but she persuaded me to stick with it and see what we could do. So uh, I was to open a new office. So I went to Seattle for a little training, then went to Klamath Falls, opened the office. My wife uh, brought my son, son uh, less than a year old, in Klamath Falls, and shortly thereafter we had our second child another son. But to the work aspect of it, I opened the office and again used unorthodox ideas and again had tremendous success. It was profitable the fourth month it was open and was building and profits were increasing every month. But the same thing happened again. I had a supervisor who was I turned out to be an alcoholic who'd come down to supervise the office and step out to his car every once in a while for a drink. And uh, he was of the same idea, that old command and control. Why wasn't I following procedures? Why wasn't I doing things as they ought to be done? And I'd been promised a raise he came down, I asked him why I hadn't received it. He professed that uh, my personnel file had been lost at the home office, and until they found it, they couldn't do anything. Well, he was lying, and I knew he was lying. So I asked him if he would mind taking a, a quarter hour or so to have some coffee and told him that while you're gone, I'll find the personnel file, if that's all that's holding up the raise. He took offense, and to make a long story short, we were at odds with one another. So they offered me a transfer to Los Angeles as an assistant to the head of advertising and promotion. 
and I was pretty naive, young at that age. I had no idea what Los Angeles was like. I was still busy hunting and fishing and and enjoying nature because that was one of the benefits of living in this little Oregon mountain town. So I uh, took off from Los Angeles to meet people, and my wife was to fly down later with our two young boys, both toddlers. And I uh, located a duplex to live in in uh, in the outskirts of Los Angeles. But I was simply appalled when we got there because the massive traffic, it was in the uh, early days when smog was so thick that you couldn't see more than a block. Everybody in Los Angeles at that time burned their household trash and incinerators in the backyard. And that combined with exhaust from cars and industrial pollutants reduced visibility often to about a city block. You could even see it in your house, kind of a bluish haze. And when you were driving a car, couldn't rub your eyes or the pollutants got into them and you'd be watering and crying. So you couldn't drive, you'd have to pull over. And I was appalled at the area. I hated it. I had to give up all my uh, hunting and fishing. But I was there and had no money and was pretty much trapped. And I found the same problem. I was reporting to uh, supposedly in charge of opening, doing the marketing and uh, and helping open new offices where I would travel to the office and work with the manager to get him to understand how to open offices and how to build them. Uh, But again, the same thing happened. I found myself in this 12th floor building in downtown LA because of my extensive debating background and And speaking ability, I ended up, one of my duties was writing speeches for executives of the company. And uh, even at times writing letters they could sign. And I thought that was criminal. Why should executives of companies take all my ideas and my work, my abilities and presented as theirs and take all the credit. To me, it was abusive. But anyway, a manager I reported to, uh, I had no respect for. He would fabricate business trips, say, to Detroit when he was really going there to pick up a car he'd bought and drive it back to Los Angeles. I realized after a year or two that The character and nature of the management of the company was just contrary to the way I believed and had grown up and the things I wanted to do. And I think it's important to realize that because of my upbringing, I had never tasted alcohol till I was nearly 20. I was not addicted to smoking partially because of the old Mormon training. 
uh, and had a, a firm conviction that there was more equity and justice in the world than I come to experience. So these things affected me, and in no time, I was again uh, crosswise with the company, and I was trying as hard as I could to change the company, and they were trying as hard as they could to make a conformist and a cog and a wheel out of me, and neither one of us won that battle. But in Los Angeles, my wife was pregnant with our third child. I was still in my 20s. We got to a point there was no alternative but to leave the company. And so I found myself in this horrible city that I disliked intensely with a few deaths on furniture we had bought, and no money in the bank, no friends, no family, just my wife, Pearl, and I and our two children with the other one on the way. I was out of work and had no idea what to do. What I later came to recognize is a bout of depression. The first thing that occurred to us, we were without income, and I had these three people to support that I should go and apply for unemployment. So I drove to the unemployment office, parked across the street from it. There was a line of people waiting to get in because it was a time of mild recession. And I simply could not get out of the car. I sat there for well over an hour, an hour and a half, trying to persuade myself that I was entitled to unemployment compensation. But I, I just couldn't do it. I felt that uh, it was contrary to everything I believed in and the work ethic I had acquired. And I had a feeling that if I ever got out of the car and got in that line, something inside me would simply die. After an hour and a half of torment, I had to drive home and explain to a seven-month pregnant wife that I simply couldn't do it. You didn't have it easy. This is very, very clear. And when people look at what you achieved, when you look back on successful people like yourself, oftentimes we know they have challenges, but you had extreme challenges. Here, you're in the depth of depression in a town where you knew no one, where the corporate dragons kept coming out for you despite your success. Where did you pick up from here? Sitting there an hour and a half in front of the unemployment queue, where do you go from there? When I got home from the unemployment office, I just swore that I was never going to be in this position again. That one way or another, I was uh, uh, was going to get out of debt and I would never again have more debt than I had money in the bank. I simply went out and scrambled and wrote a resume, looked in the paper and in every conceivable way started to find employment. And I found a job with a tiny finance company that was owned by a wealthy man, a multimillionaire. He had obtained a small loan license and tried to develop a small loan business. And the first manager had made some very bad loans and 
and left, and he needed to get it cleaned up and see if I could do something with it. At the same time, I managed to find a second job with a plumbing association whose headquarters were in San Francisco, and they needed someone to canvas the uh, Los Angeles area to try to get plumbers and plumbing contractors to join the association. So I took that job also, and neither one knew that I was working for them. And I found a third odd job trying to help someone who was thinking of trying to get a loan license. And because all of these required me to be outside a lot in the finance company and collecting accounts, I could actually work all three jobs without any of them knowing I was working another job. (laughs) And so I worked night and day for a year, and a year and a half later, I had paid all of our debts, and we had saved $1,000 or so, and we had a good enough income that I could leave the plumbing and the man who was trying to get a loan license and concentrate on the small office owned by the millionaire. So I started working that job full time. But I had developed a number of habits from my work at this point. To go back a little, my passion with reading before these events, way back when I had my first job, I had continued constant reading. I had a library card at one time, and I hated it, because whenever I read a good book, I wanted to keep it. And I couldn't mark up the library books, and I liked to talk back to them, writing notes in the margin. So I started accumulating a library through all these difficult years. And by the time they were over, I had a library of probably uh, in the the area of a thousand books. So my reading and studying had continued all these years. And debating had given me a, a lot of persuasive ability. I lost my fear of public speaking, became quite good at it. But debate had taught me that you had to master four ways of looking at everything if you were to deal with change and understand anything. You had to master how things had been, which is history. How did they get to be what they are? So how they were, had been. You had to master how they were. That is, be very realistic about the present circumstances and what you had to deal with. The third way is to master how they might become, and that's to use all your other knowledge and look into the future and see how many alternatives there were. The fourth way, which fascinated me and shaped my life, was to look at how things ought to be. And when you get into how things ought to be, you get into all kinds of morality and ethics and 
equity and fairness. And you had to try to project and predict the future. My schoolwork in college had exposed me to a whole range of things, anatomy, biology, archaeology, history, philosophy. And from that, I developed a dislike of detail, but a love of understanding and concepts and ideas. I was less interested in what and when and how, but tremendously interested in why. Once I had in Los Angeles this small office cleaned up and beginning to grow again, the owner of it came in one day and said he was really sorry, but he was bringing in an older man who would run the company and I could continue to work there, but I would be under this older man who uh, the owner thought could develop it much more rapidly and, and spread out. And this man was over me, proved to be someone who had been a senior executive in a uh, finance office company that had offices throughout California that had somehow uh, failed. I didn't really know how or when or why. Well, that was a betrayal, in my opinion. But I had to live with it because I needed to make a living. So I decided to make the best of it. This new man came in, immediately persuaded the owner to take over the leases on three of the offices of the former company because they were vacant now and persuaded him that he could do this work better by buying non-recourse contracts from auto dealers covering the sale of cars. So he took the company in a very different direction than I thought was right, but I decided to stay with it and see what happened. The new man would handle all the relationships with the owner and with the bank and opening offices, and I would be supervising them, the credits and collections. So my first supervision some months after we started took me to the three different offices in the outlying areas of Los Angeles, and I was just appalled at the quality of the contracts they were buying and the volume with which they were buying them. So I wrote a, a rather critical review of it all, gave it to the man I was now working for, and he said, oh, no, that was, that was not possible. He didn't agree with me, and so on, and, uh, and ordered me not to show it to the owner of the company. said he would take care of it, discuss it, and we would go on. So we continued down that path of after then he disappeared. The owner came to me and said, would I ask me if I would take over the whole thing once again, promised me 10% of the profits if I were successful and gave virtually no raise at that time. And I remember asking him, his name was Bill Bannerman. 
I said, Bill, why is it that people like yourself will pay so much money to get into trouble and so little money to get out of it? And he had, of course, had no real good answer. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, I took charge of the company again. Uh, one of the offices this uh, boss of mine had opened was in within three or four miles of my home, which was uh, across town from the uh, small loan office that I had originally been working to build. I immediately uh, moved all of the bad paper and contracts and the remnants of the small finance company into the office near my home, got out of the leases as best I could, disposed of all the furniture in the other offices and concentrated in this one office of cleaning it up and seeing if I could salvage it. And during those years, I had developed some habits that served me well throughout my life. And that was I never, in all my schooling, took any homework home. I found I could get passable grades by just attending classes, doing my own independent reading. So I sort of compartmentalized life, school and church. I would never let interfere with my home life and my family and my, my relationships with Pearl. And I felt that uh, I would work as long and hard as I could uh, in the business offices uh, during the day and into the evening. But I absolutely refused to, do, to take it home or to do anything on weekends. Uh, I felt that that time belonged to me, and I was not going to pollute it with with the other side of my life. So I set to work, and over the next few years, I managed to clean up all the bad debt and, in fact, recover a fair amount from former customers who defaulted. I managed to build the office up as I had done in Utah and Klamath Falls, until it was profitable. Of course, the way you built receivables was by building, getting a line of credit from a bank. You'd make a loan, and then you'd pledge that as collateral on your loan from the bank. Uh, and uh, you could borrow up to 80 or 90% of what you had loaned out at lower rates than you were charging. And therefore, uh, you could leverage your your limited capital uh, to probably 10 to 1 or 12 to 1. It's typical of the way banking and, and finance functions. So I built this office, and then I trained, uh, carefully trained two more young people and uh, opened uh, off small loan offices in uh, two other adjacent uh, suburbs of Los Angeles uh, that were pretty stable areas. 
And over the four or five or six years, I built this little company until there were uh, three very successful offices. And it was profitable and it had solid accounting and so on. Well, uh, but of course we were dependent, as was the owner, on our bank lines for uh, a good deal of what we loaned. Well, at some point in time, for reasons I don't really know, there was a bit of a recession, and the bank felt that they could uh, invest their money in other ways rather than loaning us 80% of the value of our receivables. So they announced that they were withdrawing our line of credit. And... um, The owner and I were not able, because of the economic conditions, to get a line with another bank. And so uh, it was necessary to sell the company. And that was what we had intended to do anyway in time. And at that time, if you had small loans and a good, clean portfolio, you could sell it to any one of the major companies for a, a 25% premium so that they could have a, a larger operation without the expense and difficulty of building it up. So I contacted four major companies, finance companies, one headquartered in Canada and the others in the United States, and told them that we were selling the company and all four of them were anxious to come in, uh, spread the paper, make their own analysis of the quality, and then offer to buy out all our uh, offices, furniture, uh, take over our employees, pay us uh, a 25% premium above the uh, total accounts receivable. One of the companies I didn't care for it at all because some of the officers of the finance company uh, I had worked for all my early years had gone to work for it, and I had no respect for them, but they turned out to be the high bidder. We accepted their bid and sold the company, and the profits to the owner were in the range of half a million dollars. To my mind, he owed me 10%. But after everything had been concluded, the company sold the paper sign. I sat down with him, and he took the position that was absolutely a lie and incorrect, that what he had promised me was 10% of the profits of the company from its inception, which included all of the losses before I joined the company and all of the losses while I was under this man he had brought in who proved to be absolutely incompetent. And his argument was that, therefore, the bonus was just about enough to cover the prior losses. So the company had net zero, and I was entitled to nothing. I was just shocked that someone 
would resort to those tactics. But there I was. I had never sued anybody in my life. I didn't believe in lawsuits. And my alternative was to sue him or to simply swallow my disappointment and get on with my life. So I remember vividly saying, Bill, it's apparent to me that you need and want this money much worse than I do. And I got up and walked out of the office, never saw him or spoke to him again. But by fortuitous circumstances, one of the companies that were, was an unsuccessful bidder came to me and asked me if I would like to go to work for them, supervising their entry into the small loan business in four northwest states. Well, moved to Seattle to do this. And I was just delighted to put LA behind me. I uh, flew to Seattle, met the regional manager who I would be working for, liked him a great deal. While we were working with Bannerman in, in Los Angeles, we had managed to save enough to buy an old brain and brown shingle house built at the turn of the century that had a large lot, some uh, 200 feet deep. It was zoned for apartments, but had a beautiful old home. And so that, that was where I could raise organic vegetables and have a few fruit trees and maintain my connection to nature and the world I loved. I managed to sell that without a realtor, we'd paid, I think, something like $15,000 for it. And I sold it for 29000 And for the first time in our life, we could go to Seattle, back to the area I wanted to live in, with uh, enough money to buy another house and have uh, eight or 10000 left over. So we moved to Seattle with reasonable financial conditions. And I took the job with this giant national company. A year and a half after I took that job, the regional manager over me decided to go into the mobile home business and left the company. And they brought in a manager from some other area who turned out to be exactly like the people I had worked for many times before and disliked intensely. I was then supervising the entry of this company into the small loan business, primarily been involved in financing automobile dealers. We managed to get loan licenses in Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Utah. And I was uh, traveling, supervising all those. And I did not like and was sent at cross purposes with the new regional manager. And at one point, I was supervised one of the offices and discovered the manager had been making loans to himself under other names, simply creating fraud and found him found out about it after he'd only made two or three 
what we call fence post loans, where he'd take applications and contracts, sign them himself, and then cash the checks under another name. So I wrote this up, fired the manager, wrote up my report, and each time I wrote a report on an office, it went to the regional manager and theoretically to the head offices in New York. I wrote this report, fired the man, returned to the regional office, only to be told by the regional manager that I was not to send my report to New York, that problems of this kind were handled privately and we didn't reveal them to uh, superior officers. And this I refused to do. I just told him absolutely I would not be a party to it. And the net result is I had to leave the company. He simply would not tolerate me, considered it insubordinate. So I found myself in Seattle, once again out of work, but not quite so desperate. Now, I have to go back a little, because when we were in Los Angeles with three small children, my wife decided that she wanted uh, to go back to university. So she enrolled in a local university as a freshman to get a teaching certificate with a major in speech and hearing therapy so she could work with children with disabilities in the school systems. She was finished one year in Los Angeles, and when we moved to Seattle, she registered again at the local community college, finished her second year while I was working for the big company, and had enrolled in University of Washington to finish her two years and get her degree. We sat down and talked over what we ought to do. I made a decision that I was going to uh, no longer try to climb the corporate ladders in the commercial world, that I would engage in what I called retirement on the job. I'd accept a lower salary than I'd been making. I would find a bank that was headquartered in Seattle, and I would make my judgment not on salary, but my appraisal of the quality of people that were running and working for the company. I would not cheat them at all. I would give them a full value for their money, but I knew that I could take almost any job in banking and do a creditable job with a quarter of my intellect and abilities and time. Therefore, I would use the rest of my time at things I enjoyed, which is nature and backpacking, organic gardening. And while I was in Los Angeles, I taught myself to paint with oils, and I loved that. And I would concentrate on my family that I adored on my extracurricular activities, things I loved to do. And she would go to work as soon as she was out of university in the local school system. 
And between the two of us, we thought we would be able to educate our children without their having to go into debt. Your description there of life will ring true to so many people, so many listeners listen to the show. And we're going to get into that philosophy and your philosophies of how to deal with that, et cetera, et cetera, because it's still happening. It's got even worse. The corporations have got bigger. But let's talk about what happened next, because the darkest days before the dawn, you're in that zone here. But let's talk about what you did next. And then we'll get into the end of this successful business failure and towards the birth of Visa. After we made the decision, I started contacting banks that were headquartered in Seattle. I didn't want to have to move out of the area and felt that if I found employment with somebody headquartered in Seattle, I could work there for the rest of my days and be happy because we love the Seattle area. And I started the process of interviewing. I interviewed with one or two that I felt were just simply too small to be able to do what I wanted to do. I interviewed the largest bank in Seattle. All my years of debating and collecting accounts had enabled me to develop some enormous skills. And one of them was to draw out people when I was taking loan applications and to be able to judge pretty accurately whether they were telling the truth. So at the Seattle First National Large Bank, I interviewed a number of officers in their financial areas that I was interested in and found that almost with no exception, I could draw them out and they would start criticizing their own organization, that none of them felt 100% happy. And I could sense that this was not an environment I wanted. The second largest bank, the National Bank of Commerce, was amazingly different. When I walked in, it had branches all through uh, northern Washington. It was a sizable bank. It had been in business for great many years. But when I went into their headquarters to be interviewed, all of their officers from the chairman of the board on down through all their senior vice presidents sat in one big open floor of a, a modest five or six story building and there were no private offices. There was a nice receptionist around the perimeter of the office were private, almost sitting rooms where any one of the officers could take people if privacy was necessary. But they just sat at very nice, widely spaced desks. So when you walked into this office, you could see whether the person you wanted to talk to was there or was busy or was not busy. My first interview was the personnel manager who uh, had a seat in this big open air office, took me into one of the sitting rooms. It wasn't really an interview and asked me to fill out any forms, but it was just a very pleasant, very intense conversation for a couple of hours. 
Well, he asked me about myself and what I'd done and what I was interested in. And I could ask him about his view of the bank and the bank and their policies. And uh, when I was through talking to him, he walked me over to the president of the bank and introduced me very nicely and, and said he'd enjoyed our interview and thought it would be uh, prudent to have me talk to the president of the bank. president of the bank was named Maxwell Carlson, played a big part in my subsequent life, took me into a room, and he was a, a very kind gentleman, well-dressed in a three-piece suit, and a nice watch chain. He was a little old-fashioned. We had another equally fascinating conversation. And he introduced me to two or three of the other senior officers. So these people spent the better part of half a day in interviewing. And there were no tests. There were no forms to fill out. I just felt instinctively comfortable. Uh, I didn't really know why, but I liked the people. Well, the net result of all these interviews was the largest bank made me an offer to come to them with them as a vice president at a, at a salary, maybe three quarters of what I was accustomed to making. I put off the largest bank until I heard from the National Bank of Commerce. And in a few days, they called, and I was astonished at what it was said. The senior vice president, head of personnel, called me and said, well, we don't really have a job for you, but we think we would like to have you join the bank. So if you would like to come, we'll give you a series of temporary assignments in various areas of the bank. I'm reasonably confident that within a year or so, we'll have something that's suitable for you at somewhat higher salary. And he offered me a salary about, oh, a little over half of what I was accustomed to making. I asked him if he could excuse me for just a moment or two and hold the line, turned to my wife and explained the circumstances and said for the first time in my life, sweetheart, I think I should make the decision based on the quality of people on my sense of how they behave, rather than on salaries and titles. She was agreeable, and so I went back, told the man I would be very happy to accept his offer. I was assigned first to one of their major branches to go in and to report directly to the branch manager, who would introduce me to all aspects of the branch, not by just talking to me, but by letting me do the work. Therefore, I would go into a teller cage and become a teller. And then I would go into the commercial loan branch area with the other officers and learn that perspective. I would go into the accounting part of it and work there. So for the first time in my life, I found myself with no authority, no title, a mediocre salary, 
and exposure, not a training in the bank, but an exposure to all aspects of that bank's operation, which intrigued me no end, because I wanted to learn how the whole bank functioned and its people functioned. I started that, and one of my jobs at the branch when I was in the teller cage was if the teller couldn't balance the cage at the end of the day, uh, one of my assignments is to go to the basement and search through all the garbage cans to see if I was uh, could find a, any lost deposits or any documents that might have been inadvertently discarded. <laughs> I remember vividly being in the basement of the branch wading through chewing gum and discarded lunches and all kinds of garbage, looking for uh, lost deposits. At first, I was extremely angry, and then I relied on some philosophy, and I had developed a little mantra that I used before I got to the bank, and which has served me well through my whole life. And that is whenever I was approaching someone, senior positions of responsibility, even the president of a bank or any executive that I might be intimidated by, I would silently say to myself, I am as big to me and as great to me as you are to you. Therefore, we're equal. And if anybody under me approached me over anyone over whom I had some authority who might be intimidated, I would reverse it and whisper or think silently in my mind, you are as big to you as I am to me. Therefore, we're equal. And when I was in the basement of the bank sorting garbage, that little mantra came back to me, and I reminded myself that people who sort garbage or collect it are equals to the greatest person in the land. Therefore, I would simply dig into that garbage, and I'd find what needed to be found, and I wouldn't whine about it. I'd realize that I was a country kid from Utah. And sorting garbage with no more demeaning than working in a slaughterhouse. At the end of a year of this kind of life, and my wife finishing her education, Maxwell Carlson, who is the president of the bank, called me into his office and said, Young man, that's the way he always addressed me. We're very pleased with your time at the bank and hope you have found it reasonably pleasant and informative, but we're going to take a license from the Bank of America to issue Bank AmeriCards. And as you know, Seattle First National Bank has already entered the credit card business with a proprietary card of their own, which is only good in Seattle. And he went on to explain that he had elected to take a license from Bank of America offered by the Bank of America 
because they had developed a successful program in California with which I was probably familiar. He said, yes, sir, I realized all that. He said, so we would like to be in business within 90 days, which is an extremely short period of time. And we'd like to borrow you to help us with this operation. And we've selected one of our experienced branch managers who's uh, not far from your age to be the vice president in charge of it. You would have the title of an assistant vice president. And the two of you, if you want to consider these assignments, would go to California with senior vice president, well, senior vice president of the bank for uh, a week of training. I was a little nonplussed because I had torn up all my credit cards when I had, was working three jobs and never wanted another one. I had realized that the Bank of America, who had gone into the business while I was still in LA, had lost their shirt that had gone in the red for millions of dollars earlier in the 50s, had uh, refused to uh, get out of the business and, and reorganized it and eventually turned it into a a statewide credit card that was very successful and profitable. So I knew all this. I remember saying, well, Mr. Carlson, you should know that I have no use for credit cards. I don't like them. I torn all mine up and not had one for 10 years. And you should also know that I've been running operations where I was the senior person for uh, 16 years. And I think I would be a terrible assistant anything. (laughs) (laughs) He smiled at me. And and he simply said, well, young man, if that won't bother you too much, I don't think it will bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he said, why don't you meet Mr. Cummings, who was the branch manager he was assigning? Why don't you two have lunch together and see uh, what you think of each other and what you think of the opportunities I think you would have? So I said, well, Mr. Carlson, I'll be happy to do that. I met Bob Cummings, was his name, had lunch with him. We were immediately at odds. He was not thrilled with the idea of having some non-bank outsider be one of his principal officers in opening this. And I was not enthralled with the idea of being under a branch manager who I didn't consider had any idea of consumer credit. The more we talked, the more our initial antagonism faded. And I had the sense that Bob was a very bright man, very brilliant thinker, and a bit of a closet rebel himself. He became a little enthralled 
with my experience and understanding and a few of my unorthodox ideas that I shared with him. We both had a very high regard for Maxwell Carlson, the president of the bank. And we decided that if he felt this was the right thing for us, we had an obligation to him to at least try it. So we both accepted the appointments. And uh, thus, for the first time, I was in the, the credit card business. And I didn't realize it at the time, fully realize it, that I was about to step on one of those little jewel bearings on which a life can turn in a totally unexpected direction. See, they say the darkest day comes just before the dawn, and you were just about to retire on the job, as you call it. But then I love this. You listened to your gut. You looked for good people and good vibes, good energy off people. You felt that and you went with your gut. And only a year, 12 months after rifling through waste bins, you were on the verge of launching the world's first trillion dollar business. And I look forward to discussing that with you in depth and all your philosophies and theories that you baked into that business. Hawk, thank you very much. Thank you, and I look forward to continuing our discussion.